Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. See our videos, our videos, on YouTube, and catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball, The Blind Side, and The Fifth Risks, and some other books, and your moderator for today's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. It's now my pleasure to introduce today's guest, author John Lanchester, whose new novel is The Wall. John has worked as a football reporter, obituary writer, book editor, restaurant critic, and deputy editor of the London Review of Books, where he's a, he's a contributing editor. He's also a regular contributor to The New Yorker. In addition to his current novel, The Wall, he's written four others, The Debt to Pleasure, Mr. Phillips, Fragrant Harbor, and Capital, as well as two works of nonfiction, Family Romance, a memoir, and Whoops. Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay, <laughs> about the global financial crisis. John's books have won the Hawthornden Prize, the Whitbread First Novel Prize, the E.M. Forrester Award, and the Premi Libretter, which he'll explain, and have been translated into 25 languages. Even with just a two-word title, John's new novel, The Wall, evokes the political divisiveness of our time. In this dystopian future, current political issues are taken to their logical extremes. Issues of mass immigration and populist reactions against it are cast as symptoms of the ultimate problem of climate change. The wall is most certainly a wake-up call set against a backdrop of short-sighted global politics. And on that cheery note, please welcome John Lanchester. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thank, thank you very much. I get, to, I get to go first. So um, John's a pal. He's been a pal for a while. He's been staying in our house the last few days. Uh, and I've, I've kind of avoided talking to him about much about the book because I wanted to save it for the stage. And I say this, that um, present company accepted. Michael Pollan is in the front row here. Um, uh, when friends of mine write books, I always worry a little bit that I'm not going to like them. <laughs> and you never know what's going to show up and how much you're going to have to lie. Uh, and, and with John, I've never worried about it. Uh, the, the, the stuff is always consistently so good that my enthusiasm probably is, 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 it probably is uh, sort of seems a little extreme because I'm so relieved. Uh, <laughs> but but you're, you're, this book, I think, is... A masterpiece. I think it's. I read it. I read it in a couple of sittings, and I thought you've written the book that will replace 1984 in school curriculums. Uh, and it didn't. It's a horribly depressing story in some ways, but it didn't leave me feeling depressed because I thought that if you still had it in you to write this thing, this, there's still good. There's still good stuff out there. And so I let, let's start. Maybe start by just explaining how you came to write, write it in the first place. Well, thank you. Well, and I, set it up for us a little I, bit. I want to say thank you, but now that you said the thing about lying about friends' books, which, by the way, I, I do that too, I'm, I'm now worried that you're like a sociopath-level liar. <laughs> um, yep. Uh, well, no, it was a, stra it was a strange one. Um, I, I, was, I didn't intend to write it, um, and I was part of the way through a different novel, um, and I'm still part of the way through that other novel, um, uh, unless uh, and I get home, I magically find I have written it while I was away. Um, um, but I started to have um, a recurring dream uh, in that sort of liminal state between uh, wake and sleep. And I, I don't know about you, I find I can some, sometimes sort of put myself back into a particular um, sort of imaginative place just in that, in that interim state. And it, it was, an, and the dream began with an image, and it was a, a figure standing on a wall, on his own, in the cold and the dark, with the water on the other side. And I had this over a series of nights, and I started to. You had the same dream. Same dream, and partly willed though. Once I once I sort of got it in my head, 
because there was something reassuring about it, about this, the idea of someone standing guard. And I sort of both was and wasn't him in that complicated, half-awake way. And I sort of, over a series of nights, sort of went back to that same place and then started wondering, you know, who, who is he? Who's that person? And then realised that that's actually the wrong question. The, right, the question was, what is that world? Because I realised it, it felt like an altered reality. Um, and, and then realised that actually I was imagining a world after catastrophic climate change. So let me stop you for a sec, because you've just raised a bunch of questions. You're able to dream the same thing night after night. <laughs> I'm very impressed. You're able to kind of get yourself back into a dream. How That's else, a superpower. How else do people put themselves to sleep? I mean, I, I often have a kind of recurring thing I use in that into me. I'm, though I say so myself, I'm good at sleeping. Um, uh, I've noticed. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> He's really good. Yeah, no, I'm good at sleeping. Um, it's not, not that many middle-aged men are. And um, I, I do have a series of tricks, and one of them is to sort of have a recurring... I mean, some of them are about... Another one is I'm coach of the Irish national rugby team. <laughs> uh, and in some of them, although I'm frightened... I mean, there's an odd dialectic between fear and reassurance, because I'm, fri- I'm very frightened of flying, as you know. Um, but uh, in some of them, I'm... I, I'm flying a plane because there's something, some odd thing about But this is what you're thinking about when you put yourself to sleep. And yeah, it, and, and it just kind of liminal. And, the, and you have a kind of, the dream just follows from it. Yeah, you were in able this to, instance it did. did. Were you putting your, I mean, were you doing this thinking, oh, there's a book in this? Uh, I've I got to get that back? Or were you thinking, so what were you thinking about? No, because if you start thinking it's about work, it kind of jolts you out of it. I mean, because um, it can't be too present, otherwise you start, you know, if I actually was the coach of the Irish rugby team, it would be, you know, that would be a stressful dream. Um, uh, and um, the, I've never had it turn into anything else before. Um, and it was quite an odd sequence, as I say, image, and then realize, okay, so there's a person in the dream, and then realize, no, but actually it's about a world. And then, in a sense, then, then the whole process of writing the book was unpacking the world, thinking, what's it like? You know, who are the people who live in it? What's life like for them? What are the consequences of the, of the way the world has changed? And so it was a sort of dream image person world story, kind of in sequence, like unfolding. And how many nights did you do this before you put the other novel aside Well, I, I to pay attention to this? Um, I'd say probably about a month. It sort of wouldn't leave me alone. Um, and I'll and find when, that is, when is this, by the way? It's, all, it's before early, Trump and Brexit. Yeah, it is. It's sort of early 2016. Oh. Um, before Trump, before Brexit. Though there's sort of intimations of both in the background. Um, and um, as I say, it was part of the way through the other book. And I sort of sweated on it for about a month because I was, you know... I've been planning to write the other book for a while. And then what I did for a bit was write them in parallel, which I don't, I've done once before. Did Because um, when I'm writing fiction, I do 500 words a day. And I did 500 words of each, um, which sort of takes it out of you. You can't keep it up. At one point, my, I was with my son, Finn, who you know, we'd yeah. gone away for a bit because we had work, work on the house. Um, and um, he, he knew I was working. And he said, uh, he's, he's 21 now. He was, he was 19 then. He said, uh, Dad, uh, how much writing do you do a day? And I said, to work at the moment, because I'm doing this thing, I'm doing about a thousand words. And he thought about it a bit. He said, not much. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, and he thought about it a bit more, and he said, pretty bad. Yeah. All my children write more than I do. Yeah. I mean, they're required to write more than I do. They are, but that's the secret. People don't realize the secret of finishing books is managing, you know, not doing too much in any one day. Because the thing about 500 words, which I think I got from Graham Greene. as Hemingway, I think. It was at Hemingway also, was that you have no excuse for not hitting that bar. If, if you're so, a, it's so low. It's so low. And if you're a writer, if that's your job, if you're a writer and that's your job and you can't write 500 words a day, time, you know, time for a career change. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, when you become those uh, midlife barista. Um, But then the secret is then you you hit every day. You get work done every day, and that's how you finish a book. So describe for a little bit just how how the world develops in your head over this month. And this will be a way for the audience to get a sense, because very few people could have read the book yet, uh, what the book's about. Well, the the central premise uh, is a world affected by catastrophic climate change. 
that's what I, was, I, I realized I was dreaming about. Um, and by catastrophic climate change, I mean the sorts of things that if you go online and look at a world of you know, four degrees centigrade warmer, roughly that, you know, eight to nine degrees Fahrenheit. And it's a world where um, you, know, you have floods, you have droughts, you have coastlines underwater, you have drowned cities, and you have catastrophic crop failures all across the really where most of the world's crops are grown now. And the, the map of the world isn't the way people think it is, I think. Because um, um, New York, um, Madrid and Beijing are all roughly on the same latitude. And that's squarely in the band, which is no longer habitable after that amount of climate change. And so that was really the premise of the book was that's happened. And what's life like? Are you actually going and researching climate change at this point to figure out what, what's happened out there? What's going on in my dream? A bit of it. I mean, though the odd thing was, I read up on it over the years. I wrote a sort of longish piece about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I'd, I'd sort of kept up with the science, more or less, while also actually not being able to bear thinking about it. I find it almost impossible to actually think, think about. I think you're not unusual in this way. Yeah, it's, a, it's overwhelming. And there's a thing that um, the French aphorist La Rochefoucauld said, death, like the sun, cannot be contemplated directly. Meaning you can't look straight at it. I think climate change is a lot like that. I think it's so overwhelming, so planetary, so grim. And there's so little... It's so easy to feel we have no agency. And that's very demoralizing, very demotivating. You don't know where to put... You don't know where to put your feelings about it. We recycle. We recycle, yeah. And there is that thing. My shoes are made of, my yeah. not very appealing shoes yeah. are made of wool. Yeah. You know, and you can stick them in the dishwasher. And it's, it's okay, I'm saving the planet because I've got smelly wool shoes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that sense of lack of agency does lead to a kind of not knowing how to think about it, not knowing how to look at it. And I think there's actually a direct link. I think the fact that I, I sort of can't think, I couldn't think about it is why it sort of forced itself on me in the, in the form of a dream. I, I, I couldn't figure out why. You'd never written about it before, about climate change, as a, I, even as a journalist. I read the last, the IPCC report, the third IPCC report, that's the International Panel on Climate Change, that's the official UN body. Um, and I read that, or read the executive summary, and um, so in about 2007 I was on top of it, and I've kind of kept up. And one of the things that did influence me, there was a very powerful very dispiriting paper by some scientists at the University of Hawaii um, that introduced this idea called climate departure. And climate departure is the point at which we live within a range of temperatures you know, annually. And climate departure is the point at which the coldest average year in the future is warmer than the warmest average year in the past. So that's the human reality we've lived in. And this is the new reality. And it means we're living we're effectively with a new map of the world. Because the thing about climate departure is it starts at the tropics. Um, we, we, there's often lots of news about climate about the Arctic and the Antarctic because you see these very dramatic swings with the seasons. The ice melts, the ice comes back. But actually the tropical ecosystems are more sensitive because they're more used to a very narrow range of temperatures. And that's why you have things like um, impacts like the coral die-off. 19% of all the world's coral is already dead. Um, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia lost 60% of its coral in one year. There was what they call a marine heat wave in 2016. And that's not coming back. And so what happens with climate departure is you have a kind of rolling process of living with a new map of the world that starts in the tropics. And it starts soon. The first um, city, according to this paper published in 2013, the first city um, to experience climate departure is the capital of Indonesian New Guinea, Manakwari, and that has it in 2020. Hmm. Kingston, Jamaica, 2023. Mexico City, you know, it's a proper mega city. Mexico City, 2029. That's soon. And, and that, that was one of the seeds of the book, the idea of this sort of, ro not just a kind of moment of catastrophe, but a sort of rolling process of, of the earth becoming uninhabitable is a contestable word, but b becoming kind of difficult to live something on. we've never lived in before. Yeah. Describe the Britain in your book. So the main, the, so thinking about this, the, the sort of premise of the book is this world, this altered world. And um, the main thing about Britain is the wall. It has, because of the sea levels are higher. Are they as, are, how much higher? 
Um, I, I sort of fudged that, but several meters. Um, there are no beaches. There are high. One of the things that occurred to me. No idea whether this is true or not. I made it up, but um, but there are no beaches left anywhere in the world. So beaches are a sort of ancestral memory. Yeah. Um, and the sea levels are higher, and so there's a, the wall is partly to keep the water out, which is a, I think in engineering they call a polder, which are real things, you know. Um, and the the Netherlands has lived behind polders for hundreds of years. A third of the land surface of the Netherlands is below sea level, so the wall is partly a polder and it's partly a defensive fortification uh, to keep out the people who, in the book, they just call the others, who are the starving, desperate people fleeing other parts of the world, trying to get to a place of safety. And every citizen of this country has to spend two years on the wall guarding against the others. And uh, as the book opens, my narrator, main character, Joseph Kavanagh, um, is, it's, it's day one of his two-year tour of duty on the wall. And then his story is the thing that sort of, the way the book came to me and the way it is, it, his story sort of unpacks and unravels the, this new altered world. The rules of this world. I, I, one of the things that just grabbed me about it, you clearly, you clearly studied up on how to write dystopian futuristic fiction. I don't know, if you, this, there's no way this just burst out of you without you thinking some about it. Like Orwell, it's got this matter of fact quality about it. But you never doubt that this is what the world is going to be like. It feels completely real from, from beginning to end. And it's internally, it's internally consistent. And the rules, I mean, they're, they're awful and wonderful at the same time. But what are the rules that Joseph Kavanaugh lives, lives with when he goes to the wall? Well, the main, the main one is that um, the rule of the society is that um, if the others come when you're on guard, if any of the others get over the wall, um, they're allowed a simple choice. They, they're um, either euthanized they can choose, they're either put back out to sea again, or they can become what's called help, which is effectively slaves or indentured servants. And the people in this society don't see it as a form of slavery, they're what it, that's what it is. And for the defenders who stand in guard on the wall, if one of the others gets over when you're on duty, you're put out to sea and you become another yourself. But this is a machine from turning everybody into an other or the help. Yes, and, it, but, and it's also a, a way of in sort of enforcing this division between us and them. You know, one of the things I imagine is that lots of other kind of divisions have collapsed inside society. Uh, and, but what you have is a kind of absolutely brutal division of us, the us and complete otherness. Because one of the things that if you're... In order to push someone off a life raft, which is in effect what they're doing, you have to persuade yourself. If, that, if you think of that person as having humanity in common with you, you can't do it. If you're going to push someone off a life raft, you have to convince yourself that you have absolutely nothing in common. And that's what they've, in this society, that's what they do. When you were, it, you know, it's, di it's very different from your other books. Um, there's not, um, there's not a lot of humor. But it is, but that, it, but that does not stop it from being a page turner. Um, what was the, how did you get your mind around the idea that you were meant to write the book? Because it seems very, it, it's, it's, it seems slightly out of character, other than the fact it was really good. I mean, that was the, the only way I connected up to the rest of your work is it was really good. Okay. And you do have this plain, matter of fact, English sensibility that you can't get rid of when you put pen to paper. Uh, you do remind me of Orwell a lot. Right, well, that's a, a beautiful compliment. I mean, um, I don't think much about those things when I'm writing. Um, I, it's, it's partly... Um, I, think so, I sometimes think we the sort of sta stability and continuity of our self is slightly exaggerated in Western culture, that you know, uh, the kind of consistent self we perceive ourselves to be across our lives is... Um, I think Hume argued this, and it's argued in Buddhist philosophy. It's kind of trick of memory. Yep. And what I find one of the ways in which I can actually tell that is that my books are different. But why wouldn't they be? You know, I'm, I'm actually not. I am I'm in some non-metaphorical strong sense not the person who wrote my, my earlier books. So what does this book tell you about how you've changed? Not sure it, t not sure it t tells me anything much about me. Um, 
I, I, I thought of it as a sort of... Um, I didn't read much dystopia. I mean, I have in the past. I didn't reread anything because anything too close isn't helpful. Mm. Uh, but I did think of it as a tonal thing. The thing about Orwell, um, I re- uh, funny enough, I've reread 1984 since finishing the, the book and Brave New World, partly because I wanted it kept coming, questions about dystopias kept coming up. So I wanted to kind of not be bluffing any more than absolutely necessary. <laughs> and um, it, it's, it, it's interesting. One of the things that really strikes you about 1984 is what a wartime book it is. I mean, it actually almost physically smells of boiled cabbage, Mm -hmm. 1984, and the sort of privation of World War II. And one of the things that was in my mind about what it would be like, um, because I said the process of writing, I did keep coming back to this thing of what would it be like, what would it feel like, what's the texture of experience. And, you know, if you look at that four-degree warmer world, you think, well, that's effectively, it's like a world war. You know, it would be that scale and that magnitude of alteration, and it would be that pressing on everything. And life would feel pinched and constrained and constricted in the way that life did in, in World War II, which, um, you know, we all have parents and grandparents who vividly remember and told us those stories. And there was that sense of kind of a straightened, narrowed, um, pared-down life. And I did want to did want to catch that. And that's, I, think that, I think insofar as it's got a link with 1984, I think that's the main one. I think it's about people living through this, you know, world, effectively world war. I want you to read a passage. Um, one of the things that runs through it is the resentment that generation, the younger generation feels towards older generations, which is different from a, the, the former war, unless you were German. Essentially, everybody's a German. Uh, they, they hate their, they, they, they're ashamed of their ancestors and angry at their ancestors. But read, why don't you read that passage? Thank you. Um, I'm lightly censoring this because there's a, a couple of F words which I'm going to change. Do we really need to do that? I, we, I forgot to ask before we came on. Anyone? anyone have? Can you bleep it in the radio? Okay, so just read it. Okay, you don't mind. Read it okay, thank you. We're officially R rated now. So this is a point where um, they do, a, on, the, on the wall, they do a two-week tour of duty. They do two weeks on and two weeks off. And I got that from, um, when I was at university, um, a veteran of the First World War came and gave a talk. And um, when people asked him about the horror, you know, the horror and how awful it was, and he said, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. It, it was two weeks on, two weeks off. And uh, that sort of stayed with me. Um, so they do two weeks. And this is Kavanagh. He's just done his first two weeks on the wall, and he's gone back home to stay with his parents. None of us can talk to our parents. By us, I mean my generation, people born after the change. You know that thing where you break up with someone and you say, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) This is the opposite. It's not us, it's them. Everyone knows what the problem is. The diagnosis isn't hard. The diagnosis isn't even controversial. It's guilt, mass guilt, generational guilt. The olds feel they irretrievably fucked up the world, then allowed us to be born into it. You know what? It's true. That's exactly what they did. They know it. We know it. Everybody knows it. To make things worse, the olds didn't do time on the wall because there was no wall, because there'd been no change, so the war wasn't needed. This means that the single most important and formative experience in the lives of my generation, the big thing we all have in common, is something about which the olds have exactly no clue. The life advice, the knowing better, the back-in-our-day wisdom, which apparently was a big part of the whole deal between parents and children, just doesn't work. Want to put me straight about what I'm doing wrong in my life, Grandad. No thanks. Why don't you travel back in time and unfuck up the world and then travel back here and maybe then we can talk? Um, Do you sense resentment from your children? Not about that. Um, I, I mean, intergenerational friction is a huge issue 
across the developed world. It's actually. amazing it's not worse than it is. It is amazing it's not worse than it is. Um, and it's a big part. I mean, there's a curious thing. Um, that we have a sort of harbinger of it in the UK with the Brexit. Because um, if, if you're in a black box and I'm trying to find out how you voted, and it's 52-48, so it's a 50-50 bet, and I'm, I'm allowed to ask you one question to help me figure it out, and I'm not allowed to ask you just directly how you voted. So I get one data point. The one that tells me most is how old are you? Because people under 25 were 70% remain. People over 65 were 70% leave. I don't think there's ever been a polarization along the central issue on quite that scale. And uh, so that, that really, well, the, I was thinking what the equivalent for Trump would be. I think it might be how many people live in your town. Right. Because uh, that's, that's a big Republican-Democrat thing. Every, I remember in 2012, everywhere with a population over 500,000 is Democrat. Yeah. If they say what town, you know you have a Trump voter. Right. Right. Uh, so I, that's... Uh, and I think that's a new thing in our politics to have gone but you're, yes, but quite you're, so far in that direction. Of, right. You know, um, perceptions of the world being fundamentally different. And we have it in, um, across Europe. There's a thing about, you know, different generations effectively have different versions of the welfare state. I, I, I think it was Italy, I saw the numbers that an Italian of 65 has paid, I think, half as much into the welfare state for twice the level of benefits yeah. that an Italian of 30 is going to. And actually, with that, you effectively have a different social contract. The, the generations have a different version yep. of the basic deal from society. And what I was imagining, again, this thing about taking the premise of the book and sort of unraveling it, unpacking it, I'm thinking, well, what happens if you already have these tensions and you have a situation in which, um, you know, in some of the grimmer versions of climate change and more accelerated versions, it happens within two generations or one generation? it seems to me very likely you'd have a kind of very direct blame. You would have, you would have that a thing that Kavanaugh feels and that you, basically, you guys broke the world. I mean, at the same time, I did slightly want to have a feeling there that, you know, because it's a novel, it's work fiction, um, that you can get that, thing, get that thing in family arguments that someone can say something that's true, completely true to their, you know, their experience, their reality, true about their feelings, but not necessarily fair. And Kavanaugh is completely telling the truth about how he feels, how he sees it. And at the same time, I think you know, there's room for the reader of the novel to think of his poor old p parents sitting there on their suburban sofa watching the TV and thinking, well, did they, did they that couple, did they really break the world? Um, and I, I did slightly want to have that amb ambivalence about truth and fairness. Did you... Um, so I can't write a book without knowing... I can't start a book without knowing how it's going to end. Did you know where he was going to be at the end of the book? I did. I mean, that's part of the weird thing about it coming, coming so fully formed. I mean, I can't tell you how odd it was for me, that thing. I mean, it's not like it's normal. To With the dream. The dream and the whole. You were, so you were, you were moving the story forward. Yeah, well, no, I, no, the dream was all just that image. And then the rest of oh, it was me unpacking dream. it. Well, it's not. It's a sort of liminal it, state. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's the man on the wall. Was there, on the wall. And there, was there water? Yeah. It was water. That's how I knew it was about climate change. Because when I started thinking about who is he, I realized it's actually the wrong question. It's what is the world. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it came pretty much, um, you know, pretty much intact, beginning, middle and end in terms of the structure of the book, um, which I think is to go back to this thing about I've clearly been on an unconscious level really thinking about it quite a lot. I think not being able to bear to think about it and the book emerging fairly fully formed were actually very directly linked. But I was talking about this the other day. How so? Well, just that I think it was, you know, I think you could do a lot of work with your unconscious when you're writing, especially when you're writing fiction. I, I think even with nonfiction you can. Yeah. I lot. wake up with solutions I didn't have when I went to bed. Yeah, I, think, I really do think that. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, almost the main part of writing is the stuff that you're not consciously doing, I think. Um, and uh, Garth Risk Hulberg, who I'd never met before, I really like his books, um, met in New York the other day. And his, his line was, I thought I was quite impressed by this. He said, every writer gets one. You know, you get one book. One clean. sort of dream come out oh. in one, as it were, one take, which broadly speaking, it was. It was sort of fairly intact. It reads I don't want way. to make it sound as if that's no, no, normal. No, no, it completely it's, it's reads that way. It, it reads that, but I just didn't, I wondered whether you knew where you were going when you started, or whether you, your character kind of 
did things that surprised you? No, I did know where it was going. I always have to know, I do have to know the ending. Um, uh, I, I, otherwise, it's sort of weirdly like, um, I don't know, it's like you're trying to build an arch, but you've only got one side. Right. But the, and I find it amazing that some writers don't do that. And I actually deeply want to not believe writers when they say they don't know and they just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just from experience, I just, I've heard that too, too often. It must be true because everybody says it. But to me, it sounds... I, I just, that would, I'd, I'd just be too anxious. I'd, I'd keep worrying that it was going to kind of... You know, I'm trying to build an arch, but there's only one bit and then the whole thing would fall over. Uh-huh. You're, you're unusual as a, as a writer because you write both fiction and non-fiction books. And they're equally strong. That most novelists are sl- kind of you feel like they think you feel like they're slumming it when they're writing their nonfiction or they're just not quite that good at it uh, um. you are listening to the commonwealth club of california hear thousands of our podcasts on itunes google play and stitcher and when you're in the bay area please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year you can find us online at commonwealthclub.org Now, back to our program. Do you, for you, is it a, is it a, is it the the experience basically the same when you're sitting down to write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction? No, it is, um, it is a bit different. I think for me, um, I can, I find if I'm interested in something, I can write journalism or nonfiction about it. Um, You know, there's something happening in the world. It's sort of, oh, that's an interesting story. Um, uh, or, in a sense, you have an obligation to write about it, something like Brexit, I felt an obligation to write about. Um, I've written a fair bit about Silicon Valley type stuff just because I think it's so interesting. Um, but uh, the, the process for novel is, does have more of the... Um, it's things like, if I can't quite explain what it is about it, that's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that... They're even my better ideas, I think. They're just the ones that won't leave me alone, that they kind of bug me. And um, a bit like that dream image, they sort of keep coming back. It's like some tugging on your sleeve. How about this? How about this? And, and the, and the um, thing I've come to think, um, the thing I've arrived at, is that if I can't explain... that I've come to trust that, basically, because on the, on the theory that if I can't explain why it's un- got under my skin as a thought and it's got, some, it's got some gravitational pull that I can't explain to myself, maybe it'll have the same effect on the reader. Hmm. That I just have, to, just have to trust that, that there's just something about it that won't leave me alone. But, ba- but broadly speaking, if, I'm just sort of, if it's out there in the world and it's interesting, I can write it, about it head on in non-fictional form. And if there's something sort of that just won't leave me alone, those, are, those just I notice have been the things I've ended up writing novels about. You've never had any trouble deciding whether this thing that you're grappling with is fiction or non-fiction. No. Capitalism could, could have gone either way, I'd felt. It's always felt very clear cut. The thing about Capital was this, there was a sort of reverse thing that I'd, I wanted to write a, uh, what I thought of as a big fat London novel. Um, and partly because I didn't grow up in London and I felt I'd seen lots of changes. And there's that proverbial thing about the boiling frog. The frog doesn't know it's in boiling water because the temperature's gradually rising. And I felt that lots Apparently of, that's not true. Yeah, no. I mean, if the frog why, jumps it, out, it's, it's people who don't. Yeah. Right. No, it's so stupid. Why yeah. wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they jump you know, out? Yes. You know. um, but it's a nice metaphor. It's a yeah, useful yeah, yeah. metaphor. Yeah. Um, um, so the non-existent proverbial boiling frog um, was in my mind as the, what you know, life was like for Londoners who hadn't... You know, the city had changed so much. I know you know London. You see, mm. It's just an astonishing, convulsive change. That, and I felt no one... It's as if people hadn't really noticed. And because I wasn't from there, I felt I saw it more clearly. So I wanted to write about that. And then I realized that I couldn't write about that without finding out something about finance and economics because that, had, that was the force, more than anything else, that fundamentally reshaped London from the mid-'80s. Mm. And that it was affecting literally who my neighbors were. You know, not in some abstract way, but literally the people in the house next door w- w- were changed because of, because of finance. Mm. And... So I started, you know, reading up on it, figuring out how things worked. And then the credit crunch happened. And that was suddenly a hot journalistic topic. And there was sort of news things to write about out in the world. So there was a kind of funny parallel, you know, writing about the two of them um, together. Because what happens, I finished a draft of Capital about 2000 and end of 2009. 
No, uh, yeah, early 2009. And by that point, I knew quite a lot about credit crunch stuff because I'd swatted up on it. And, and my, my, I was worried that I would end up incorporating it in the finished book. Because, you know, there's quite, the trouble with research, it's quite hard to yes. walk away from it. It's hard to, it's hard to ignore sunk cost. Exactly, the tyranny yeah. of sunk cost. Yeah. One of the many gloomy ideas from economics which has some applicability yeah. in, in fiction. Um, so, and, you know, if you do, basically, if you do a research thing, your, your characters end up doing it. So if you go to, if you go to Mumbai, um, you know, your characters end up going to Mumbai. They have to. Even if they should, so just, gonna, yes. you know, they should just stay at home in Oakland where they belong. Yeah. Um, and, I, I had, and, and I suddenly realized that, no, if I come back to re finish the book, I'm going to have a scene where, you know, as Nigel looked out the distance towards the lights of the financial center glistening on the horizon, he struggled to remember the definition of a collateralized debt obligation. <laughs> yeah. It all comes back to me, thought Nigel. As, you know, and, um, so I realized I had to do something with the research. So that's when I went off and wrote uh, the book that was published in Britain. Yeah, you got it out of your system. Yeah, exactly. In nonfiction. Whoops, and, and yes. published here as IOU in order yeah. to kind of quarantine it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, and the weird thing is that, you know, this finance stuff, it just won't go away. So I'm still... No, we're yeah. living in the world. It was useful yeah. to have learned all about it. It's still, it's still relevant. A lot of these questions are about Brexit. And that's, you've been sitting in my guest cottage writing about it. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about sure. what you're writing. Well, I, I'm, I'm writing um, uh, I, you know, a piece which can broadly be summarized in three letters and a, and a piece of orthography, which is WTF, question mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, an American paper asked for a sort of, um, not exactly an explainer, but a narrative. And the thing that, um, you know, the th I, I wasn't surprised by the, by the vote, because I thought it was always going to be a knife edge um, thing. And it's really dumb to ask people that kind of referendum question where you basically say, you know, are you content with your lot? Yeah. Says the government. You know, everyone, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how well is that going to go yeah. ever? Um, and it becomes a lightning rod for all kinds of dissatisfactions and discontents and resentments of other that aren't really about the thing the referendum's about. So I wasn't particularly surprised by it. The thing that is genuinely jaw-droppingly stupendous is the fact that if you'd heard the referendum result, 24th June 2016, you hear the result, you faint. You're out cold for two and a half years, more than two and a half years, two years, nine months. You wake up today. We're leaving the EU in... Two, ten 11, days. 11 to 10 days. Yeah. You wake up two, two years, nine months later. You say, what happened? Right? There's two ways of answering that question. You can say, well, what happened was... Um, there's 500 different newspaper headlines of you know, excitement, drama. This happened, that happened, the other thing... This, or you could get, just say, nothing. <laughs> so, no, no, but wait, 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 wait. No, what I mean is, um, what's going to be the future of UK's relationship with the EU? Because obviously it's our main trading partner. It's right on our doorstep. It's 350 million people on the continent. It determines all sorts of, every aspect of our life and society, you know, and our security too. You know, what, what, what's, what's happened about that? Nothing. <laughs> Don't know. But what's our future relationship? No idea. So, well, who, who does know? No one. And because I know people who, in journalism and politics and business and all that, um, and there's, you know, very often um, there's a sort of secret insider version of things. There's a sort of, you know, after two drinks and sotto voce, people will tell you what the real deal is. Yeah. Um, and there's no version of that with Brexit. Why not? Did you hear the radio on the way over the way? You, you, you weren't listening to me with me when I heard this, but the French foreign minister just named her cat Brexit because, <laughs> because the cat meows to leave the house. But the minute she opens the door, it kind of looks around like it doesn't know whether it wants to go or not. So explain this, explain this, this uh, the difficulties. I think... Well, the, one is that referendums have no constitutional status. So the, the government could, Theresa May could get up in Parliament tomorrow. I, I didn't realise. They should say we're not doing it? Yeah, I mean, it just has absolutely no, because oh. we have a representative democracy. Yeah. They're just, in a very straightforward and literal way, referendums play no, no part in anything. So a politician but, could get up and say we're not doing this? May, May could say, get up tomorrow and say, ha ha, psych! Yeah. You know, the whole thing was a joke. 
and constitutionally there's no problem. Um, I think it also it's broken the party system. The party system is is organised like on basically lines of class affinity. Labour, historic party of the working class, Tories, historic party of the better off. And the referendum fault lines go right across that. Um, socially liberal Labour members are in favour of a remain. There's a kind of traditional white working class component to Labour who want, want to leave. Tories are a party of business and a nationalist party. Um, they're basically both coalitions in the same way that the Democrats and Republicans are coalitions. And the business wants to remain, the nationalists want to leave. And so the trouble is that you have both parties pursuing a policy as, as a manifesto commitment in the election to respect the result of the referendum. Um, uh, so they're committed. And that leaves a large... We're now about 55-45 against that 55% of the population is disenfranchised. Yeah. Who, are you gonna, who do you want to vote for? Well, go whistle. There's no one to vote for. It's a little bit like what happened in the Iraq war when the majority of the population was against it, but both main political parties were in favour of it. And that did a lot of damage to the democratic system. Uh, if you have you know, a two-party system and there's most people have no one to vote for on what they regard as the main issue of the day. Huh. And that's the, that's the other structural flaw. And I think linked to it, um, and there's two more things. One is there's a kind of general climate of um, norms around veracity and truth have weakened. Um, obviously, this has no resonance at all. <laughs> here. Um, you feel that's true in your country as well? No question, yeah. And, and there is a substantial part of the Leave campaign was things like... Um, this is talking about the EU, well, they need us more than we need them. And, and, and by the way, marijuana is not legal in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, they need, well, okay, so the 350 million of them, they have eight times our GDP, and they, because, it's just, you know, they just do. Um, Turkey's about to join the EU. There are 70 million Turks about to have the right to move to the UK. A... A, xenophobic, Islamophobic, and flatly false. Yeah. But that was a claim. Uh, leaving the EU worth 350 million more pounds a week to spend on the National Health Service. That one was actually plastered across the side of buses, yeah. Leave campaign official bus. Flat lie. Yeah. And, and um, you know, there was this... I think, I think the best word for it, there's an Italian word, fanta politica, which means sort of fantasy politics... <laughs> falsehoods, made-up narratives, um, a sort of general climate of wishful thinking. Mixed in with legitimate grievance. Mixed in with legitimate grievance and channeling legitimate grievance. And that's the three things. And it adds up to the fourth thing, which is that there are 650 members of parliament, so you have to get to 326 to have a majority or anything. And I think because the ballot just said remain, leave, which is, a, leave sounds very simple. But actually, there's no such thing as leave. It's really complicated. There are all these different models for how to do it. And even when you basically agree about stuff, it's still very complicated. The EU and Canada agree about pretty much everything. Um, you know, and they're the kind of closest thing you can imagine to two countries that are, you know, happily hold hands and sing Hakuna Matata in terms of values. But the trade deal took seven years to negotiate. That's, that's normal. Thing. Yeah. So there's no such thing as leave. So you have to have a version of it. And in terms of getting to 326 members of parliament, I think there's no majority for anything. Yeah. There just is no parliamentary majority for any one outcome. So it has deeply broken our politics. And I think it comes back to this thing that you can't complete the sentence. The future relationship of the UK and EU should be... And you can't finish that sentence with in, a in a way that gets you to 326 votes. There's no, there's no answer. There's no answer, I, th I think. So what happens in 10 days? Well, by, by automatic operation of law, um, I mean, the, I mean the, other, the other factor is um, just governmental incompetence, I should say. Yeah. Um, cowardice and incompetence. Cowardice in terms of not confronting the Fanta Politica and the people who want to leave with no deal. And incompetence just in managing the whole process. And one of the main acts of incompetence was triggering this thing called Article 50. Um, and Article 50 was designed, says the man who, who drafted it, to make it impossible for any country to actually leave the EU. It was a kind of bureaucratic <laughs> trick and a trap. It was meant to be so obviously stupid and self-defeating that no one ever did it. You know, welcome to the UK. Um, LAUGHTER 
And um, Article 50 was triggered. And Article 50 sets, um, it's like um, yeah, in the movies, the self-destruct thing that counts down. Yeah. It takes exactly two years. And so at 11 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the 29th of March, we leave the EU by the op automatic operation of law. This, is uh, really ha this that's really happening. happens. That's a Nothing can thing. stop that between now and... Yes, but Parliament has to pass a law. Mm. So you have to have some version of 326 votes to turn off the doomsday clock. So what do you think the first thing people notice? How does this unspool uh, after March the 29th? Well, I think they'll delay. Um, I think that will be the... But that, the EU has to allow them to do The that. EU has to agree that all 27 countries, they have, they have effectively a veto. Yeah, so all it takes is Greece. All it takes is somebody, you know, somebody with a, a, a four-alarm hangover. Yeah. Um, and their iPhone wake-up thing doesn't work. For, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but I think that the EU will... Um, uh, so you don't think well, it's going to happen? Quietly suppressing its schadenfreude and, and giving witty names to the foreign minister's cats will, will probably... Um, you know, delay and, and just, you know, chuckle behind their hands. So let's say that doesn't happen. What, what would happen on day 11? Well, it depends how bad the EU wants to make it. Um, the worst version of events would be, you know, running out of certain foodstuffs and running out of medicine um, because it breaks all the supply chains because Britain would legally have the same status as a country, what they call a third country. So it's like, as it were, Pakistan. Uh -huh. you know, our lorries going into the border to France, Germany, wherever are from a completely other country with whom you have no trade agreement. Right. Um, that, even if we let everything in, which obviously we'd be well advised to do, because it's quite useful to have things like, you know, insulin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but, by the way, all the insulin in Europe is made in Denmark. And so the insulin is a real example, a real problem. Um, we let the trucks in, but then when they're going the other way, they're effectively coming over the border from Afghanistan or Mali. They can't legally. get back. They can't get back. And that break would break all the supply chains immediately unless the EU chose not to play hardball. And the, Is there anything, what would, the, what would European countries miss from Britain if the supply chains are broken? Well, so what, what incentive, are there any medicines coming from Britain into France that they won't have if... if there are a, a lot of things go both ways all the time because yeah. it's effectively frictionless. Yeah. And so one of the things about the car industry, for instance, they said... One of the Brexiteer fantasies was, well, we'll trade on WTO terms. You know, look, WTO already has default agreements for these things. But things like the car, the car business, um, parts travel, parts cross the channel eight times in course of manufacturing a car. You know, a computer chip made in Cambridge goes to a factory in Dusseldorf. It's too complicated to unravel. It's like a billionaire's divorce it's without a prenup. Exactly. Uh, it's uh, like which is what, why no one thought it would happen. And, uh, and it's one of the things, it's one of the reasons Article 50 was designed to make it impossible, just that the, the complexities would defeat it. And by the way, that may happen yet. The, uh, the actual complexities may, because various um, people who know a lot more about law and business than I do uh, were, you know, muttering that, even if you think, even if you're in principle in favour of it, the machinery of government and legislation just won't be able to do it. And actually, it's, that's slightly looking like where we are. What's required to happen in Ireland on 11 days from now? Um, in theory, uh, 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 you know, there's a... A, a wall. A, 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 yeah, um, a magic... We li in theory, we live in Harry Potter wall, Harry Potter world, yeah. and somebody waves a magic wand and says, construct Borderio. <laughs> and there's a magic But there's order. nothing there. There's it? nothing there. And in fact, I, you know, it's one of the things, because I'm, I'm Irish on my mother's side, I'm half Irish, and it, it was um, you know, preoccupied by that from a very early point. And my, my view then and now is they can't solve it. They just can't solve the Irish border. Because um, you know, it, by, by treaty, by an international treaty, the, uh, the um, Good Friday process, um, the, everyone in Ireland has the same rights, and including rights of free movement, uh, and uh, rights of citizenship either way. And, you know, the border just isn't a thing. You can, you can cross into the other country. You quite often cross into the other country when you're overtaking a car because mm. the border's in the middle of the road. There are barns which have one end in the Republic and one end in Northern Ireland. Uh, I have a friend who could spit into Northern Ireland out of his bedroom window. Yeah. yeah, a border just cannot and will not happen. And if you tried, you'd have violence on your hands. I, th I think they, were, they won't even try. It's not even yeah. conceivable at that 
stage. I mean, not just for that reason, just as it's a practical yeah. impossibility. And it's also a day one. That's the thing that happens at 11 p.m. on the 29th. What happens? And, and there, by the way, there is a really easy solution to that. There's an incredibly easy fix to that. You just say, OK, well, Northern Ireland stays part of the single market. Northern Ireland's in a customs union with the Republic mm. and therefore with the EU, and Britain isn't, mm. um, you know, which is uh, extremely simple and um, elegant conceptual fix and has an immovable obstacle in the form of the unionists in Northern Ireland. I love the yeah. idea of the city of London moving to Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as if. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, the whole unionist ideology can be just summed up as saying that Northern Ireland is British, and the thing is, you know, Belfast is as British as London. Yeah. Um, and they won't accept what they call a border. The obvious solution to the border problem is to have what's called the border in the Irish Sea, and that is completely anathema to the unionists. They won't accept it. And Theresa May is dependent on unionist votes, because uh, when she lost her majority, she had this brilliant idea of calling an election in 2017 to get a bigger majority, instead lost her majority altogether, and has had to buy votes effectively from the Democratic Unionist Party, who are the most passionately anti-EU of any of the parties uh, in, in Parliament. So that you have this paradoxical thing that um, the, the people who could solve it are the ones who are most passionately opposed to the obvious fix. Um, and, and the odd thing is that that's driven huge amounts of popular support for a united Ireland in Ireland. Um, because people in the north, the majority population in the north, wants to stay in the EU. It's just the DUP who are in power, who are opposed to it. So you have this odd thing that the most passionately unionist party, effectively, that there's ever been in Parliament, is it's doing the equivalent of campaigning as hard as it can for a united Ireland, which is just properly... Down the rabbit hole, Alice in you know, it's, you know, it's fine. Not, we won't dwell on this a whole lot longer, but I tell you, there's something cathartic about hearing you, or pleasurable about hearing you talk about your political problems, because I feel like I had the flu and I found out you had pneumonia. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of nice to hear other people have bigger problems than we do. Uh, yeah. But I think you kind of do have a bigger problem than we do. Well, I, I think, you know, you can take the view that Trump is for four years, but Brexit is forever, um, because I think... This process, whatever, the, whatever happens next, doesn't solve it. No, just, We're going to be arguing about this for years. We'll accept the demographics are moving in the right direction. The demographics Every are day, old Brexit voters die, and, yeah. and the leave it right, that's what happens. Well, that, you, what was your, you told me this the other night. Yeah, no, it's one of the odd things, because, because leave voters are older. If we re-ran the referendum now, and only people who voted last time are allowed to vote, and they have to vote the same way, that the referendum would now pretty much be a tie because of the differential death rate. Like 650,000 votes. Yeah, they, we, they leave one by about a million votes, and about, it's on the uh, demographics, about three-quarters of a million leave voters so, will have died. So if you can delay and delay and delay, you start to build a majority for Remain. And the overwhelming likelihood is that by the time, if, we, if they do get a deal and we do leave, it takes a couple of years to get there. By that point, of the people who voted, the majority who, vo who voted will have voted Remain. Right. Which is a generational divide. Yeah. A really you know, you explain, he explained something very... I had an odd experience on my last book tour in London. Um, I went over in November and I got off the plane and I was, I was hauled onto British television right away. And I was, uh, it was the BBC station right next to Parliament. And nobody prepared me for it. And I was on the tube with MPs who were there to argue about whatever the problems, it was all Brexit, the problems of the day were. And I had no business being on this panel. And they turned to me in the middle of their arguing back and forth about the, you know, the complicated details. And they turned to me and said, well, you know, what are your thoughts on this? And I said, why don't you have another vote? And they all went, that's a good idea. <laughs> and, 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 and I thought, I thought, it's not that good an idea. Why do you think, and you explained to me why they all reacted that way. Yeah, because you're not, they're not allowed to say that. Yeah, because everyone wants another vote. Because of the respecting the result of the referendum manifesto commitments. If you could have a secret ballot in Parliament where you asked all the, the MPs all got to vote on whether they ha there was another vote and nobody knew how they voted on that, do you think you'd get a majority for that? Yeah, probably. And I think if you had a properly secret ba ballot that would... Because like, the thing about this Article 50 thing is that that can be withdrawn unilaterally. Mm -hmm. The government can just say, actually, we changed our minds. So, yep. Sorry. Yeah. 
Um, and um, I, I'd have thought that if you had a secret, a properly secret ballot in Parliament, you'd have sub, um, you would have a majority. You know, maybe three, seven, five, four hundred of the MPs would vote just to kind of cancel the whole thing if they thought they, if they politically thought they could get away with it and were doing the right thing for Britain. That's what they would do. So I want to hear your thoughts on Trump, since you're here and you're visiting uh, and you're taking in our culture. Tell us, this is, British authors, when they come to America, all we really want to know is what you think of us. So what do you think of us? Well, Trump's obviously a disaster. That's no secret. Um, and the question is, um, thank you. Um, as, as Orwell said, um, you know, one of the tests of moral character is being willing to tell audiences things they don't want to hear. <laughs> Um, uh, Trump's obviously a disaster. And the question is, how big of one? And what happens afterwards? My, my wife, you know, she wrote um, a piece for The New Yorker about... The, she wrote a book about Kaiser Wilhelm. Miranda Carter. Miranda Carter. She wrote a book about Kaiser Wilhelm um, and uh, had a piece in The New Yorker um, called What Happens When a Bad-Tempered, Easily Distractable Doofus Becomes Head of a Global Empire. <laughs> Obviously, about Kaiser Wilhelm. Um, and one of the interesting things about the parallels, because he clearly had an attention deficit issue, Kaiser Wilhelm. He was a narcissist. Um, he was constantly, you know, if Twitter had existed, then he would have, you know, he would have loved it and been a catastrophe on Twitter because he was always, it's a great idea. Um, you know, going off script when making official speeches and, you know, starting wars and causing havoc. Um, and one of the interesting things about, and terrible things about Kaiser Wilhelm is that the greater part of the damage... I mean, he did cause the First World War and all that, but he continued to cause damage afterwards because his legacy was so divisive and he left this sort of toxic, militarised society with a deep uh, narrative about grievance left over from the Versailles Treaty. And I think the, you know, Trump's obviously going to be uh, an unhappy memory at some not-too-distant point, but the question is how persistent the damage is. That's the thing that, as a someone who you know, deeply admires and loves America, the, that's the, the, problem, the, 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 the thing that really worries me is that thing about the, the afterwards. Did it surprise you we did this? Not after Brexit. I mean, I don't think there was... Um, yeah, no, but seriously, I don't think that there was a... I didn't think there being a causal link, because I think it's, you know, that's a fancy, the idea that somebody in the poll, poll booth in Wisconsin who voted twice for Obama... You know, think, well, here's about the Brexit and click, tick, ticks Trump box instead. I mean, there's no causal link. But I think there's a sort of structural similarity about um, people, you know, I know more about the Brexit thing, but I think there are analogies about people saying, people who are feeling ignored and angry and pushed to the side. And there's a big thing in Brexit that people say, you ignore us, you don't care what we think. Try ignoring this. And I think that there's a kind of structural thing about try ignoring this that was similar. And once Brexit, once it was clear that there was this phenomenon that the elite commentators had, had missed, had just completely missed the depth of feeling and the intensity of that thing, that's made me think that, you know, that, that was the point at which I started thinking, uh-oh, um, you know, maybe the commentators who say it'll all be fine, maybe they don't know quite as much as they think they know. Someone in the audience asked, did you choose the title of the wall before today's rhetoric about walls started? There was an odd thing. No, I mean, because when I started writing the book, it was early 2016, um, I did actually double check. It was because Trump didn't mention the wall till July. So it was before it. But I was thinking about trends. That, you know, it's like the Are you saying that, he stole it? Yeah. Well, that, I'd say that 5,000 bucks I slipped Manafort for publicity yeah. really worked <laughs> out. Um, the... the um, I was, you know, in economics graphs, you get the solid line up to the present and then the dotted line stretching into the future. And I was thinking about the carrying on that dotted line, the kind of the trend we're heading in, continuing in two specific ways. One, climate, obviously, that, you know, we don't moderate our lifestyle. Um, the developing and emerging world burns fossil fuels at the same rate we do. And the, the kind of gloomy version of science is is accurate, and that takes us to four degrees quite quickly. And the other dotted line I was thinking about was the trends in our society and politics, the sort of turning inward, turning away from each other, rise in nationalism. Countries um, as gated communities. And countries as gated communities. And I think from a sort of, if we were reading about it in Tacitus, I think it would look pretty 
clear that a period of openness and walls coming down and internationalism is being succeeded by a period that heads in the opposite direction. And one of the, one of the hallmarks of that is, um, to an extent that I think people don't realise, we, we are living in a great era of wall, wall building. Of uh, Most of the walls, the majority of the walls built since the end of the Second World War, we think of, oh, the Berlin Wall came down, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But most of the walls built since the end of the Second World War have been built this century. There's a, 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 I think it's 1,500 mile long, 1,500, yeah, 1,500 mile long wall between... Is that true? Wall between, I have yeah. no ability to no, check that. Wall between, wall between, you could just say that. Wall, I, I could, but, but it is true, trust me. Um, wall between <laughs> India and Pakistan, the, the oh. wall between Israel and Palestine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Iraq is walled off from all its neighbours. There's uh-huh. four, four different sets of border walls. There's a wall between Western Sahara and Morocco. And these are shiny, new, high-tech structures that are being built and maintained as we speak. You know, we're in, actually in a golden age, a horrible golden age of new wall building. And, and so, yes, it's a huge coincidence with the Trump thing, uh, but also, in a way, not a coincidence because we were, you know, unfortunately, I, you know, that dotted line that I was looking at is the one we have continued on. So we just, I'm going to take a cue here from the audience because I think that a lot of these questions are wanting you to be a little more, a little cheerier. <laughs> uh, so here's the one that's most direct about it. Discuss optimism in your life. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. We've survived the plague, World War I, World War II, etc. Do you have no hope that we will overcome? I, I, I have deep hope. I mean, I partly... Um, the Italian communist political philosopher Antonio Gramsci has always been a big hero of mine, and he had this formulation about pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And I deeply believe in that. And I think one of the reasons that... One of, the, one of the, my motives in writing this book um, is to stop it from happening. You know, if I could put all my ambitions and hopes for it into one formulation, it would be to be wrong. And... I think that in order to act, we have to be able to do that thing I I said is difficult. We have to actually be able to look at climate change, face it, accept it, see it for what it is, and then we can act. Because that that state of, you know, death like the sun, like climate change, we can't look at it, is a direct invitation to despair. And if we despair, we won't act. So we have to have hope. Hope's really important. And it would be one thing if the science said we're doomed, but actually that's very specifically not what the science says. The UN Climate Conference in Katowice in November, um, there there was a report on keeping the world to 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming, that that's perfectly possible, coordinated global action at scale. And 1.5 degree warming since the Industrial Revolution, we've had about one degree already. Now, that's no paradise, that warmer world. It still leaves the oceans warming for literally centuries afterwards from residual heat effects. But the difference between even 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade is, as the UN says, that's hundreds of millions of lives saved from catastrophic negative impacts. And again, as the UN says, direct quote, every tenth of a degree matters and matters a lot. And the science is telling us that we can act to prevent it. So I think of hope as not just a thing that's nice to feel in and of its own sake. I think of hope as um, a moral imperative. Because without hope and without the willingness to act on it, we're going, to, we're going to create this world that I've imagined in the book. And I just think we, we can't and mustn't. Um. My favorite line about optimism comes from the psychologist Amos Tversky, who said, uh, pessimism is stupid, because when you're a pessimist, you experience it twice. Once when you're anticipating the bad thing, and the other, thing when the bad, the other time when the bad thing happens. Yeah. But it actually is more intelligent to be an optimist. I think I'm with him on this. Yeah. And I also think, you know, we've been talking about Brexit, but actually I think um, they're wildly different things, because Brexit is is, um, you know, local, it's temporary, because the demographics tell you that young people want a relationship with Europe. You know, it's obvious that it ends in some version of a relationship within Europe. I think the likeliest thing is that the kind of configuration of Europe will change. I think the, the euro is a kind of deeply problematic project that isn't really working. So I think you'll have what the German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer called a Europe of multiple geometries. 
I think there'll be lots of ways of being attached to Europe, and Britain will always be part of that. So I think that will, over, over a period, solve itself. So it's tempor- temporary, it's local, and it has a kind of tragicomic side to it. I mean, there's something ridiculous about it. And I think climate change is, is very different because it's, it's permanent, it's global, and there's nothing comic about it. And that's, where, that's what my book is about, and that's what I think... That's where that imperative to the moral imperative not to be pessimistic is so important. We're going to end on that note. Um, ladies and gentlemen, John Lanchester. Thank you. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We want to remind everyone here that copies of John's book, The Wall, are for sale, and he'll be pleased to sign copies outside this room following the program. I'm Michael Lewis, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you so much, Jeffrey.